Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. In our last episode, I was joined by Kenosha-based trial lawyer Michael Cicchini for our weekly recap. Together, we explored a number of things that came up during the courtroom events that we covered last week, including Judge Bruce Schrader's rulings on the prosecution's request to admit the defendant's prior acts as evidence and the state of justice in Kenosha, Wisconsin overall. On today's episode, we begin with the November 2nd, 2021 opening statement made by Prosecutor Thomas Binger, in which he recounts the events leading up to the night of the shooting on October 25th, 2020, and anticipates the defense argument by encouraging the jury to question whether Kyle Rittenhouse really did act reasonably and in self-defense. Our examination of the prosecution's opening statement begins right after the break. A trial is a storytelling competition. Lawyers battle to outdo each other in convincing the jury of their version of events. And just as any powerful story needs an arresting first chapter, a trial lawyer relies on the opening statement to grab the jury's attention. The prosecution, having the burden of proof, gets to go first. Kenosha County Assistant District Attorney Thomas Binger, the lead prosecutor in the case, rises to address the jury. The evidence in this case will show that on the night of August 25th, 2020, here in our community of Kenosha, the defendant Kyle Rittenhouse, who was 17 years old at the time, had armed himself with an AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle loaded with 30 rounds in the magazine. Binger is thin and sports short, gelled brown hair and a graying anchor goatee. He wears dark-rimmed glasses and a gray suit with a purple and gray plaid shirt and a periwinkle blue tie and pocket square. Binger lives in nearby Racine County. He originally hails from South Dakota and attended the University of Michigan Law School. His first sentence to the jury suggests that he assumes that the panelists will find the very nature of the weapon that Kyle Rittenhouse was carrying on August 25th dangerous and inciting, particularly when combined with Rittenhouse's young age. Binger continues. And using that rifle, he shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum, an unarmed man. The shot that killed Mr. Rosenbaum was a shot to the back. This occurred after the defendant chased down Mr. Rosenbaum and confronted him while wielding that AR-15. The evidence will show that the defendant fled the scene of the dead body of Joseph Rosenbaum without stopping to offer any aid whatsoever. And as he's running, word spreads from the crowd on the street that there is an active shooter running through the area and the citizens there attempt to stop him. They approach the defendant. They One person hits him in the back of the head. One person takes a swing at him with a skateboard. That individual is Anthony Huber. Eventually, the defendant loses his balance and falls to the ground. 
An individual who is the subject of count number two, the unknown individual, runs in at that point and attempts to kick the defendant in the face while the defendant is on the ground. This unknown individual is unarmed. The defendant, in response, points his AR-15 directly at this individual as this individual is literally flying over his body and discharges that gun twice. Luckily, that individual was not hit. But clearly, if he had been hit, the wound would have been severe, perhaps even fatal. Immediately after that, Anthony Huber, who is holding a skateboard, comes in and reaches for the defendant's gun. He grabs hold of the gun and tries to pull it away from the defendant. The defendant is wearing his AR-15 strapped to his body. There is a nylon strap around his entire body, and the gun is slung from that. So it is essentially attached to him. Mr. Huber's efforts are unsuccessful because of that strap. And in that struggle, the gun winds up pointed directly at Mr. Huber's chest. The defendant pulls the trigger one time and discharges a round into Mr. Huber's chest, killing him instantly. A final individual by the name of Gage Grosskreutz has followed this chase on foot and has approached the defendant at this time. Mr. Grosskreutz is holding his cell phone that he'd been using to record the night's events for a live stream on Facebook in one hand and a Glock semi-automatic pistol in the other hand. He runs up to the defendant. The defendant turns towards him with the AR-15. Mr. Grosskreutz raises his hand. The defendant then turns his rifle over, begins to examine it for a second. Mr. Grosskreutz takes this opportunity, and you will see in the photos and the videos, that he blades his body with his left hand reaching towards the defendant. His right arm is pulled back. This is the one with the gun in his hand. And as he's reaching for the defendant, the defendant turns the AR-15 and discharges the eighth and final round into Mr. Grosskreutz's right arm, the arm with the gun. Mr. Grosskreutz runs off, screaming for a medic. The defendant gets up and walks away. On that night, he killed two unarmed people, shot at a third at very close range, and wounded Mr. Grosskreutz in the arm, who was armed with a gun. Binger then provides the wider context in which the shootings occurred. As we all discussed yesterday, this occurs during the context of the events following the shooting of Jacob Blake, which occurred on Sunday night, August 23rd, 2020. And we all know that within a short period of time after that, the community erupted in protests, looting, rioting, arson, and violence. Sunday night and Monday night were two of the roughest nights that our community has ever seen. We are well aware of the damage that the uptown area along 22nd Avenue suffered. The probation and parole office on 60th Street, the furniture business there. Car Source, one of their locations on Sheridan, and other properties around town that were damaged. Fortunately, in the entire sequence of events, this was all property damage. And one of the things we all agreed on yesterday is life is more important than property. Up until Tuesday night, despite all the things that the community had experienced, no one had been killed. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. After summarizing the property damage that was sustained by the city of Kenosha in the hours and days following the shooting of Jacob Blake, Prosecutor Binger suggests that this looting, destruction, and arson was not carried out by locals who call the city home. But like moths to a flame, tourists from outside of our community were drawn to the chaos here in Kenosha. People from outside of Kenosha came in and contributed to that chaos. And it caused many of our citizens to fear for their safety, fear for their homes and their families, fear for their businesses, and take steps to protect themselves, whether it is to arm themselves, board up their windows, move or take time away from the community. All of those reactions were entirely understandable and reasonable. And no one here is going to tell you otherwise. As long as those are what you're left doing, there's no issue. Prosecutor Binger then contrasts and compares Rittenhouse's actions to the actions of others who were present in the streets of Kenosha that night. But out of the hundreds of people that came to Kenosha during that week, the hundreds of people that were out on the streets that week, the evidence will show that the only person who killed anyone was the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse. Repeating his point for emphasis, Binger tells the jury about the video evidence that they will see during witness testimony. Evidence will show that hundreds of people were out on the street experiencing chaos and violence. And the only person who killed anyone was the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse. We will show you videos of some of the events that night of police, tear gas, rubber bullets. And yet the only person who killed anyone was the defendant. There are fireworks going off, which is a loud noise. Sounds like gunfire. There are fire guns being discharged. The sound of gunfire throughout our community that night. Hundreds of people are there experiencing this. And yet the only one who kills anyone is the defendant. We will show you video of hostile confrontation between literally hundreds of people on one side of the issue and on the other side of the issue. People getting up in each other's faces. And yet the only person who killed anyone is the defendant. Hundreds of people experienced those nights, experience the night of August 25th, experience that chaos, hundreds of people. And yet the only one who killed anyone is the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse. In jury duty's coverage of the trials of Robert Durst and the McMichaels and William Bryan, we saw prosecutors weave audiovisual material into their opening statements. However, Binger uses no media elements in his presentation. We will return to this detail in later episodes and in our recap at the end of the week. Binger then seeks to shape the jurors' understanding of their responsibilities in this trial. Recently, I heard someone sort of tongue-in-cheek joke that jury service is bringing in folks from our community and paying them $8 a day to help solve a murder. We're not asking you to solve a mystery in this case. In most homicide cases, the elements that I need to prove might be a little challenging, but here, there's no doubt, there will be no dispute in this record that the defendant had that gun that night, shot eight bullets, four of them hit Joseph Rosenbaum, two of them at an unknown individual, one into Anthony Huber's chest, and one into Gage Grosskreutz's arm. That will not be in dispute. The central issue in this case is going to be self-defense. 
and the judge is giving you an instruction, which I want to highlight here, because there are some factors that I'd like you to keep in mind when you hear the evidence in this case. The defendant used deadly force. There is a privilege under our laws to use deadly force, but it's a very limited privilege. That privilege, according to the law, indicates that the defendant can only use deadly force if he reasonably believed that the force was necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself. In determining whether or not those beliefs were reasonable, the standard is what a person of ordinary intelligence and prudence would have believed in the defendant's position under the circumstances that existed at the time of the offense. The reasonableness of the defendant's beliefs must, must be determined from the standpoint of the defendant at the time of his acts and not with the benefit of hindsight. You are essentially the people of ordinary intelligence and prudence who will apply that standard of reasonableness to the defendant's behavior and make a determination as to whether or not his use of deadly force was reasonable. Was it reasonable for the defendant to believe that the force was necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself? That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us on our next episode as we continue our examination of the prosecution's opening statement as Thomas Binger describes some of the key witnesses in this case. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Vanessa Herron. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. The episode was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.